I'm Kim Singletary. And I'm Rich Collins with Biz New Orleans Magazine. Welcome to Biz Talks. Each week, we reach beyond the pages of Biz New Orleans Magazine to bring you in-depth conversations with members of the business community. From the names everyone knows to the ones destined to make their mark, we'll dive into the top issues, best practices, successes, and failures of every industry that calls Southeast Louisiana home. My name is Kim Singletary. I'm the managing editor of Biz New Orleans Magazine. And in this week's issue of Biz Talks, we're going to get into uh, the effects of COVID-19 and what the future may look like for both area nonprofits and for child care centers in our area. And we're gonna do that by chatting with Michael Williamson, who is president and CEO of the United Way of Southeast Louisiana. For over 95 years, the organization has been working across seven parishes in the region with the goal of eradicating poverty and ensuring all citizens are economically stable. Williamson has led the organization's COVID-19 relief efforts recently, which so far have generated more than $7.5 million in local community support through things like crisis grants, volunteerism, advocacy, and nonprofit partner funding. He's also serving on Governor John Bell Edwards' Resilient Louisiana Economic and Community Development Task Force. Michael, we're honored to talk to you today. Well, thanks for having me, Kim. I really, really appreciate it. Um, So when this podcast comes out, it's going to be May 12th, and we'll be less than one week from the restrictions lessening, and businesses are definitely in the mode of moving forward. But what's not being talked about very much is the issue of child care. Um, And obviously, parents can't go back to work without it. Um, I know I'm working from home right now, and a lot of people are, but um, that's not obviously possible for a lot of people, um, especially has been for the frontline workers, essential workers. Um, But then as we're getting back to kind of (laughs) getting back to business, um, we've got the hospitality workers, retail, manufacturing, um, you know, all types of, of businesses that cannot be operated from home that need to have to have people out there. And so access to affordable childcare is a big part of, of making that forward uh, possible and moving forward. And I know the United way has been working in this arena quite a bit lately. Um, so let's start with what does the childcare landscape look like in our region? Well, and thanks Kim. This is such an important issue for us to talk about. And we, we know just, you know, looking back into our post-Katrina experience that in order for industry and business to come back, you know, childcare had to be available because folks needed a safe and secure place to put their children. And now after the pandemic, you know, childcare centers have closed. And so I know there's some service provision for essential personnel, but what we learned through a study with the Louisiana Policy Institute for Children, a survey of childcare center owners and directors is that upwards of 40 percent suggest that they might not be able to reopen uh, due to the closure and certainly, you know, the lack of resources coming in. And so we we have to pivot and think about what can we do to support what we've known for a long time is an essential part of our of our infrastructure and supportive workforce. And so we launched the United for Early Care and Education initiative in partnership with Loyola School of Law and their law clinic and Agenda for Children, an advocacy organization that advocates for high quality early care and education. And so we're working with child care centers to help them access things like the payroll protection program loans and other federal and state resources that may help them keep their doors open and stay operational. So 
what is, for those that might not know, what what is child the early child care and all of that look like for um, for people? Is that who's running it? How many how many organizations and, and businesses do we have? What does that landscape look like? Well, there in just in our region, there are hundreds of early child you know early child care child care uh, centers. You know, and, and folks and parents know who they are because they're taking their children there. But they're across our seven parishes. There are hundreds, many of which are small businesses. And so and also on top of this, they they are, are predominantly women and minority owned. So we're talking about women, minority owned small businesses that operate child care um, services that, you know, could possibly not reopen. And so and oftentimes and one of the observations that we made was many do not have, you know, robust or traditional banking relationships that were so essential and have been essential to accessing a capital and as an example with the payroll protection program, uh, loan program. So um, we knew they needed some uh, support, technical assistance and some handholding and some advocacy, bringing banks to the table, et cetera. And so we, we in a matter of uh, just a few days, thanks to a relationship we have with Dean Madeline Landrew and the folks over at the Loyola School of Law, put, put together this partnership and leaned on their expertise, um, providing you know, you know, technical assistance and counseling and case management, you know, specifically around legal needs, but other things as well. And so, um, but here, yeah, but the reality is, and I kind of said this before, it's like the reality is upwards of 40% said we might not be able to reopen. And for those that have tried to access childcare in periods where lots of people are trying to access childcare, you know, it's not that easy. You know, mm -hmm. the, the center you want to go to doesn't always have availability and, and, and certainly quality can vary. And so we're trying to take this opportunity to make sure they have the supports they need and also advocate for other things that may help them as they come back to come back, meet their needs to be as high quality as possible. So how long has this program been running and what, what kind of success have you had? We've uh, we started about two weeks ago. Um, I guess by the time we aired this, it'll be three weeks ago. Um, we've had about upwards of 20 centers that have applied for technical assistance because not all would need it. Um, we're able to support up to 70 in some of the early data. And I've got I'm waiting for the final reports or the initial reports to come out. But you know, I live in St. Tammany Parish and we've already heard of a Covington Center that because of our help, access the payroll protection program loan, has some resources coming in, is gonna keep its door op doors open and hopes to be there for the families that were using their services pre-pandemic so those families can get back to work and, and start to support their families again. So we hope to have more and more data that suggests that, hey, this is a this is a, a something that's absolutely necessary and and, in the grand scheme of things, it might seem like a drop in the bucket, but when centers are caring for 100, 150 children, yeah, that's that's hundreds of families that are relying on those centers to come back. Then they go back into our workforce. So, are there when you're saying? I mean, that's a lot of kids in one spot. Are are, are there restrictions going forward on any of these centers? Well, part of the effort right now coming out of the the Resilient Louisiana Commission Task Force, forces, et cetera, is, and working with, you know, the local health, state health and federal health agencies coming up with the best guidance possible, you know, for these centers to make sure that, you know, they operate appropriately 
based on what we've learned from, from COVID-19. And something, Kim, I think is um, important to note as well, and it's something that we're looking at, that you know, the, the cost of centers is going to increase because they're going to have additional measures to, to mm -hmm. take into account, you know, PPEs, masks, those kind of things that they'll need to provide for their employees. Well, these small businesses already operated on thin margins. So now we're saying, you know, everything else is staying the same. You can't afford to charge more because people can't afford to pay more because childcare is already expensive, but you're going to have to incur more costs because operating in a post-pandemic environment where social distancing and the need to be properly guarded using PPEs, masks, et cetera, um, will increase your costs. And so those things seem little until you talk about, you know, addressing it at scale. And so we're going to have to think real creatively about, you know, how does the, how do government business and, you know, the philanthropic sectors work together to ease as many of those burdens as possible. Are you guys working with anybody outside of our region? I know, I mean, this is unlike Katrina, this is, this is a worldwide issue um, and obviously nationally. So is there any kind of where you guys are kind of pulling together with people outside of our region or trying to figure out, because um, we're obviously not alone in this issue. Well, there, the, the beautiful thing about Louisiana, um, Kim, is that there are a number of state and local advocacy organizations that are all partnering right now. You know, one example is the Ready Louisiana Coalition, which is a coalition of dozens of, of organizations that advocate and work in the early care and education space. And they're certainly, they're certainly lending their expertise to help advise and counsel you know, our, our, everybody's plans going forward, including ours. And we lean very heavily on, you know, these organizations provide us with as much data and research as possible. Because to your point, this isn't just a, a New Orleans or a Southeast Louisiana issue. This is a national issue. And mm -hmm. quite honestly, and I, as far as I can tell, so, you know, so far, you know, we are, we are very much on top of, if not ahead of the curve, as far as our thinking about an approach like this, specifically geared towards sustaining their operations and helping them get open as quickly as possible. And I credit so many people, so many partners with our ability to do that. Um, but we know it's like one infrastructure need that's gonna be absolutely required for folks to return to work. I know I, I have a child that's a little bit older and when you're talking about some of these like early childcare centers, you're talking about you know pretty young children, but I know going forward, um, like the schools are, are not, um, are not operating for the rest of this school year. And then you've got camps that are, you know, closing down and, and tra traditional summer care options that are, are not being offered. So are, are some of these, any of these child care centers looking at maybe taking older children than they would have normally, or have there been any changes that way? Would you know about? I couldn't, I can't say that for sure, but once again, and you'll hear me say this often, uh, just how uh, blessed we are, just the, the, our ability to be so ready and pivot based on our past experiences, our current work. And so as an example, we in partnership with the Institute for Mental Hygiene run what's called the New Orleans Campaign for Grade Level Reading. Okay. And that, can, that campaign focuses on some key drivers of reading success at third grade because we know the data says if you're reading at third by third grade then you can learn how to you've learned how to read by third grade so that you can 
read to learn when you approach fourth grade and beyond. And so when you see those numbers trending low, you know, kids are falling behind in school and that leads to poor academic outcomes. But one of the key elements of our approach through the campaign for grade level reading has been around access to high quality early care and education. Right. And, out, and outside of that, we focused on school absenteeism, but then the next one is summer learning due to the challenges that many of our communities see around summer learning loss. So the way I like to put it is we typically deal with about a three month period of summer learning loss for kids that aren't exposed to academic enrichment opportunities, right? They're right. stuck at home, they're stuck in front of a screen perhaps, parents are working, there's not a lot of inter interaction and nurturing that takes place, therefore there is some learning loss that happens. Well, that's gone from three months to six months now. And so we're having to think about how do we adapt our work in that space and begin to work with our partners that do summer programming, after school programming, child care, to figure out how do we tackle this differently in an environment where there are still many unknowns. And, and we're so fortunate that we have you know, some supporters for this. Uh, we, we do this work under uh, the Campaign for Grade Level Reading through our K. Finley Summer Literacy Institute, which has been uh, generously funded by David Finley um, of Associated Terminals and Turn Services. And so you know, we have a framework but now we're having to figure out how do we apply that framework much differently for the very reasons that you mentioned. And once again, we're thinking about it as an organization because we have staff that have children. And when it's time to come back to work, what are our policies around that? And what level of understanding do we have regarding their needs for taking care of their children, but also working and doing their jobs? And, and so it's, it's something that we're certainly wrestling with now um, but it is certainly top of mind. Okay. Um, and then I, I know kind of pivoting a little bit, um, you guys are obviously a nonprofit and you work with a lot of different nonprofits. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what that landscape looks like. I know United Way um, was, like you mentioned, after Hurricane Katrina, uh, um, one of the big um, players in, in, in trying to bring the city back. And now we're dealing with a completely different um, disastrous situation, but um, the non nonprofits really expanded after Katrina, and um, we had a, a whole bunch of people, and we do have a very strong nonprofit community. And so, how is how are they being affected through all of this? So we did. Um, we're gathering the results. We did a survey of our nonprofit partners, <laughs> um, the sixty three organizations that we work more directly with. Um, each year around our blueprint, blueprint for prosperity. So they're funded to provide certain outcomes to us. So we reached out to them because we want to know what, is, what does this mean to your organization? As you can imagine, 100% said that they were affected. The overwhelming majority said, you know, the biggest impact on their agency is meeting payroll. Um, almost 100% said struggling to provide services. And then almost half are saying, just the changes in how they operate and their operating hours. And so the early data suggests that everybody's being impacted, certainly having the financial resources to maintain their staff um, is a big issue. And that's largely driven by either if they have you know, service fee revenue is one thing, but if you'll recall when this pandemic was really becoming, you know, a significant issue that, uh, fundraisers and special events were being canceled left and right. Well, yeah. those, those events, 
you know, large and small provide significant revenue to many of our partners and they stopped. And so, as you can imagine, you know, large chunks of organizational revenue just disappear and they can't replace it either. And so that's putting a huge financial strain on these organizations. We're hopeful that as many as possible have been able to access the payroll protection programs, the loans, but uh, not all have. And so um, it's going to be um, it's going to be a, a, a serious issue going forward to think about the changing landscape of our nonprofit community, given that some may be threatened, like the child care centers, um, you know, with the inability to not open. Yeah. Um, are, are there certain are there certain kinds of nonprofits that are I'm assuming more like you said the more service oriented the more kind of that are are they being more affected than others? Well, there's there's a, there's a variety of factors, but I think here's a really really important point, Kim. You know, one of the questions we've asked of our partners is, you know, how much do you have in reserves to sustain you during this pandemic? Um, some had two weeks, some had a month most not more than that. And so when you think about a healthy nonprofit organization, you think about their ability to weather challenging times and you want them to have a reasonable reserve. Now, sometimes that could be looked at as, well, you're, you're sitting on resources that could support your mission, but in times like this, you need those resources to support your mission when the need is just gonna be dramatically greater. And so, one of the factors we know is like so many just don't have reserves to operate beyond a certain period of time, which then even further as exacerbates the issue of, you know, folks being unemployed, you know, folks are furloughed, sent home. Um, and it is to do a lot with the service fee revenue and organizations that do counseling case management. Now, a lot of our partners have shifted to doing those things virtually using Zoom, et cetera. Others are doing, um, you know, telehealth. You know, some of our mm -hmm. mental health counseling organizations have pivoted pretty well to that. And I think a lot of their funders are giving them some leeway to be able to to serve differently. And so an understanding a funding community that understands is very helpful to our partners as they try to adapt. But not everybody can do that. And then on top of that, Kim, you know, the delivery of telehealth and virtual learning opportunities and case management requires that the person that's being served has access to the technology and the tools to do that. So right. you gotta have you know, broadband, Wi-Fi access somehow. You gotta have a smart device or some device that you can connect to the internet or a telephone. You know, and not everybody has that, believe it or not. And, you know, there are pockets throughout the region that serve as examples. And so it just, it really, you know, it really is a challenge, but I've been really, really impressed with how innovative you know, our partners have been in responding, folks like Kingsley House that immediately shifted to doing as much as they could do virtually, um, also doing, you know, their teacher training, et cetera, trying to pile in and get all their continuing ed stuff done while folks could, weren't providing as much direct service and you know, just take advantage of whatever was available to them. So it's, uh, it's certainly accelerated a different way of working. I mean, something I'm sure we knew was coming, you know, years down the road has just been you know, put on our doorstep. And I know I've, I've been to uh, Alice report, um, the asset limited income constrained employed report that you guys put out um, that um, 
talks about, you know, the economic disparity and really highlights that and what it looks like in our region and, and what kind of problems we're facing. And when you're talking about the issues that are coming up with, you know, pivoting to things like telehealth and pivoting to things like, you know, uh, trying to do some programs online and, and that all of, all of the social distancing has, has really brought that into focus, it really does uh, I guess really focus on the fact that so many people don't have access to internet and to, you know, technology is that, and that is kind of across, it's affecting multiple sectors um, in a, a, so many parts of our economy. And is that something that, is anybody kind of working on that? It seems like it would solve a lot of problems yeah. if we could get more connectivity and, and is it an issue of, um, like people, I know obviously it's, it's expense. It's an expense every month, but is it something that people can't, you know, afford that? Is there a way to subsidize it? Is there, um, we don't have the connections that we need. Like, I guess I'm trying to, well, how do we go forward? We were trying to fix that. Well, and you, I think that I, here's what I would say. There are a lot of efforts underway to try to address these gaps, you know, you know, technology companies, you know, mobile companies, um, et cetera, who've had programming in place are really accelerating, you know, their ability to serve certainly underserved communities that may not have access to the resources. You know, some of the partnership work we've done around um, access to technology, as an example, you know, BET, Black Entertainment Television, did a, uh, a fundraising event for five targeted communities. We were one of them. That effort ended up raising a little bit more than $1.7 million for uh, our community and, and several key, several partners of ours. And included in the focus of the funds is access to technology. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of efforts underway to try to figure out how to close those gaps. Right. And I think it's certainly being accelerated because people really understand the downside. But this is a significant issue and something that we've been trying to to keep front and center ever since we launched the Alice Report is that w almost one in two households are one paycheck away from hardship. And so simple things like, you know, internet and a cell phone expense, mm -hmm. you know, for most seems like that's, you have to have that. It's like, you, you can't get by without it. But there are many families that have to make a choice. Like if I'm gonna have that, then I've got to do away with something else because my budget won't won't allow me to afford it. And this in this day and age, that's just that's just not acceptable. It is absolutely essential that people have access to the internet and that they have devices in their home that allow them to connect to the world and certainly for children, learning resources, etc. And so it's a it's something and but I once again you've heard me say this before, mm -hmm. but we're blessed we're blessed because we have our blueprint for prosperity. Our plan's been in place for just over three years. Alice is at the center of it. We're focusing on education, health, and economic opportunity. And we have specific things that we're doing, organizations that we're funding to help us meet these, these challenges head on. And so I tell my team and my board often that, you know, our work over the past few years, fortunately or unfortunately, when I look at it, prepared us for this moment. And so it, at, least, at least we're not guessing what to do. We're just figuring out how to resource it, how to pay for it. Right. Well, and on that end, let's let's kind of finish up with 
with what's the good news? I mean, what are the what are the businesses and and that are jumping in and helping out and and you know how how are these things getting funded? Are you finding support and and where's that support coming from? Oh my gosh, Kim, this is like I'm glad you asked that question. It's a great way to end uh, uh, a really nice conversation. So as an example, when we launched, and let me let me say this: we have twenty plus thousand donors every year. We have 800 businesses that support us every year. So we have very strong and faithful supporters. But as an example of how folks show up in a time of crisis, we launched the Hospitality Cares Pandemic Response Fund, which we did in partnership with the Louisiana Hospitality Foundation. Entergy Corporation stepped forward with, forward with an investment of $200,000. Um, Fidelity Bank stepped up with significant gift. DeMario and Tamala Davis, Peyton and Ashley Manning, um, and the list goes on and on and on. And uh, the Sugar Bowl Committee gave us $100,000. The Convention Center gave us $500,000. I mean, the, the support. And, and on top of that, the, you know, the, the names we all know, we've had over $70,000 in contributions online. Wow. And in a time of crisis, for folks to dig deep to try to help out, um, that's just extraordinarily good news. And then Every time we turn around now, we have you know, relationships that we have with businesses, et cetera, that reach out to us and say, we see what you're doing. We'd love to partner with you. We have some ideas. Can we talk about it? And our team immediately you know, gets on a Zoom or a conference call, works through a plan, and we spring to action. And um, it's just very, very heartwarming to see. So, And the good news is just using the, the Hospitality Cares Pandemic Response Fund example, We've raised over $2.1 million for that fund. Wow. As, a result, as a result of that, we're going to be able to help over 4,000 displaced hospitality workers by giving them an emergency assistance grant of $500. 4,000 people who are telling us that money helped them cover their rent or that money meant they could go to the grocery store and get food for their family or pay their utility bill or pay for medications. And so... It's something else to behold. And once again, we're just so fortunate to be able to play a role. So I, I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty. Um, but how are, are you, are you afraid? Are you, are you, what are you, how do you look at things in the future? Are you, are you hopeful for the region? I know, I mean, we've, this is unfortunately not the first time we've gone through um a, a huge problem. Um, it's the first time we're doing it and sharing it with the rest of the world. But um, as far as for the region, you know, what are your thoughts going forward as we kind of move into this next, this next phase where we're starting to, to open and starting to move forward a little? Well, like I, I tell, you know, and people that know me know that, that I'm the optimist <clears throat> and that, um, and you made the point that this is Louisiana. This is New Orleans. You know, we don't back down from a challenge. In some cases, you know, we look at kind of the way we approach our love for the Saints, et cetera. We don't, we don't mind being the underdog either. And so I'm very, very hopeful. But listen, I understand that there's a lot of uncertainty ahead. But when you look at the collective brain power, the intelligence and the tenacity of folks at all levels, you know, individuals and in communities, business leaders, government officials, nonprofit organizations, and everybody's focused on the same thing. 
I can't help but believe that we're going to come back, um, come back as quickly as possible and actually be stronger than we were before. Um, and so I'm extremely, extremely hopeful, but it's simply because I just see the, the unrelentless support that we're receiving. And I see the unrelentless, unrelentless support that you know, my colleagues in the nonprofit community and others are receiving as well. So I'm, I'm really, really hopeful. That's great. It's wonderful. And I know, I mean, if there's business leaders out there listening and they, they want to make a difference and, and help out with things like, like necessary childcare and, and yeah. the nonprofits and hospitality and all that, they obviously know where to go. To yeah, absolutely. We, we encourage them to, to reach out to us. And I'll say, I'll say this, Kim, it's not just about money. Um, we need the financial resources I think also helping to shape really, really uh, important policy going forward uh, is is essential and leaning in, you know, and helping with that. And also volunteers. I mean, the number of folks that have stepped up to volunteer in this pandemic has just been fantastic. Um, doing it differently, you know, practicing social distancing and a lot of safety you know, requirements, but you know, so yeah, we'll, we'll take help however we can get it. And, and we often say around our organizations, our organization, many hands make light work. What kind of volunteer opportunities are there out there? Is it things like, like meal deliveries or like, what kind of options are there for people that are, are kind of have some free time? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's uh, interesting that you, you mentioned that um, we're in partnership right now. We partner with Hands On New Orleans and they operate our United Way Hands On Intergy volunteer center that's supported by Intergy in the city of New Orleans to feed 311 seniors. In other words, seniors in New Orleans that have called in and said they need food assistance. So we have 1,700 addresses for folks that have called in. To date, we've delivered over 280,000 meals and we've been, we've been using volunteers to both sort and pack those meals, but also volunteers that come through for delivery um to to take those items and deliver them and so it's been impressive to watch you know everybody's masked up gloved up practicing social distancing as best as possible you know, all the requirements that that we all know of and then lines of cars that are pulling up to grab boxes of meals to deliver them to to seniors and so folks can go to our website at unitedwayscla.org slash volunteer okay. And right there, they can see whatever opportunities to, to volunteer there are. And we also have virtual volunteer opportunities, just calling and checking on a person. Oh, wow. A senior is, uh, yeah, so you can use, you can do it from your home, you know, hop on your cell phone, you know, call somebody and just check on them and see how they're doing. I had not thought about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that, the, you know, uh, once again, so many of us are blessed to have our families around. And uh, of course, I think parents are valuing uh, teachers more today than they ever have. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, but but you think about folks that are you know alone. Yeah. And if you're a senior that's alone, and it's not like your neighbors can come and check on you because everybody's worried about the safety of of uh, of seniors. And so this is a way to say, hey, we're thinking about you. We care about you. Is there anything you need? And we can arrange for ways to meet those needs. And so it's it's. It's a virtual check-in, but if a person demonstrates some particular need, then we're going to work with our information referral partners over at 211 to make sure we get those needs addressed. Well, that's awesome. Well, thank you for everything that you're doing and everything the organization is doing. And 
Um, it was awesome to catch up and, and keep us posted yeah. on everything that's going on and and how everybody's moving forward. And we, we just really appreciate it and appreciate your time. Well, Kim, we appreciate y'all too. And thanks for helping to get the word out. Thank you. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Take care. All right.